I'm going to sneeze. Uh, I've got an explosive sneeze lined up. Excuse me. Yes. That was a good one. You know when they were wondering how Jeff Bezos got into space? (laughs) They they launched him from your nostrils. (laughs) That's the power of my sneezes. My auntie once told me that if you hold your sneeze in, you'll get a hernia. And ever since then, (laughs) I really let every single sneeze out unless I'm at a funeral or having a smear test. If you sneeze when you're having a smear test, you you fire the nurse across the room. Today's episode is sponsored by Workshow Grow. Workshow Grow is an educational online community for creatives, supporting their growth through membership, mentorship, workshops and events. And recently they had an artist retreat in the New Forest, which I heard was an enormous success. Workshow Grow was founded in 2018 by Natasha Caruana. Natasha is an internationally recognised and award-winning artist and educator who you should follow on Instagram because her life is amazing. And what makes the place she lives in is amazing. And what makes her baby is amazing. And what makes her even more impressive is, actually, this is really serious. What runs straight through the middle of Natasha's work is her commitment to advocacy for the issues affecting creatives right now, artists right now. Stuff like diversity, inclusion, developing your creative and professional skills and the entrepreneurial side of creativity. The reason I love listening and learning from Natasha Caruana is that in my experience, we have um, artists at sort of one end of this slider and people in the commercial world printing money at the other and um, artists find themselves sort of having to venture out into this no man's land finding a way to marry their process their artistic process with commercialization and Natasha has worked out how to do that and she actually helps real artists sell real work on their own terms and she actually helps real artists get sponsorship gallery places um, um, grants it's very real world, which is an absolute breath of fresh air. I've completely gone off script because I'm really excited about what Natasha does. <laughs> Listen, go and follow Work Show Grow. If you're an artist or a maker, if you want support, there's masses of free stuff that um, Work Show Grow produces. And if you want to join a membership, um, this is the one that you should head for. Natasha, by the way is always on the lookout for exciting speakers to mentor and support artists to get ahead. So if you're an artist, if you've got bags of creativity and fancy paying it forward to help others get ahead, that is right up Natasha's street. So she'd love to hear from you. Drop her a line. Hello, my name's Fleur Emery. Welcome to the award-winning Real Work podcast. Real Work is my online membership that democratises business learning for women. We create content and community that will improve your confidence, knowledge and network by around 50% in as little as three months. And we know that because we've been measuring the data. The Real Work podcast brings you loose and lively conversations, very lively at times, <laughs> with women who have taken the women's work rule book and ripped it up. 
and sometimes even used it for hamster bedding. We're here to show you what's possible for you in your own career. So have a good listen and enjoy. Now, let's find out who's coming up on today's episode. Hello. This week on The Real Work Podcast, I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Shilpa Billamoria, founder of the House of Billamoria. She uh, makes garments by hand with history, love, and a sense of legacy, which you rarely hear in the fashion business. So circular economy and more, and a, a lovely, serene listen. So see what you think. Shilpa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, I shouldn't call it a show, should I? That's welcome not serious enough. Welcome to... Um, <laughs> Does feel like a show. Welcome to the Real Work Podcast. Thank you for having me. And um, has your have you been, have you done podcasts before? What's your podcast involvement like? I've recorded a couple of podcasts, but never never this with mics like this and stuff like that. So this is um, this is the first one ever like this. We've done very kind of DIY this, this, podcast recording. This, this professional, yes, exactly. This is extremely yes, professional. Yes. Thanks to having a producer. Yes. The um, <laughs> the reason we're here is because of your interesting um, approach, really, to your work. So you are a, well, it's funny because the first thing that comes to mind is say fashion designer, but those words now, fashion designer, summon all kinds of images and associations immediately, which are nothing nothing to do with how you live and work are yeah. they fashion designer so it really doesn't describe what you do although you make you make clothes you make garments how how is a better way to describe what, what you do I would more so describe it as a bespoke atelier so when we when we talk about what we do it's a luxury upcycle atelier so it's more of an atelier style of creating clothing rather than the sort of ramps and runway or you know clothes peg sort of off the peg stuff that you see that comes along with fashion design and in a minute we're going to talk about how that came about but in terms of just imagining your day-to-day working life how how you source your fabrics what your a bit about your process that's the word for it isn't it what's your process your sugar yeah so Exactly like you said, when you say the term fashion designer, it doesn't really tell you what we do because we are we are the craftspeople of the way the clothes are created. So we start right from the get-go, right from the beginning with selecting fabrics. And usually these are chosen from people's wardrobes, people's suitcases, stashes from time gone by. Um, so a lot of the sourcing happens in granny's wardrobes or auntie's cupboards. Uh, where we run in and, you know, just get take the things that they aren't wearing anymore and upcycle those into brand new pieces. Um, so what we do is we source the material, but even before that, what we do is we sit with our customer. Um, if, if it's a bespoke item, what we do is sit with our customer, identify who they are, what their style is, and really learn about them before we even design anything, because what we do comes with a lot of identity and um, us basically having people shine as who they are sort of thing. So we want to bring out the person rather than just creating something they plonk on and, you know, go around and not really embodying. So we create 
embodiment. Um, and then, of course, we draft our patterns, we do our fittings and end up with our final pieces. It sounds lovely. The, um, the idea that people um, use fabrics with sort of memory and meaning, even from the sort of step one, it makes it feel more special. Are they the fabric stashes from um, auntie's suitcases? Are they? Do they always belong to the client, or are they whose aunties? Well, the, so aunties, and then sometimes these are passed down through the generations. So they'll maybe have uh, mothers, grandmothers, great grandmothers, even in in certain cases, um, or their own. So you, sometimes a lot of the stuff is from like bridal trousseau time. So they'll have their trousseau of cases of saris, or you know, cases of things that they've been gifted in the past. A lot of the time it ends up stuff they will not wear as it is and it stayed there because it's a gift and they're like i can't possibly get rid of this thing because one day so and so is going to come and ask me where's that sari that i got you and they're like don't have it anymore um so then transforming that into something they will wear fills them with a lot of pride because they've hung on to this item because it's very special and been gifted with meaning at a certain time um and then we make it make it wearable and um, so this, what you're describing is an Indian tradition. Yeah. So the fabrics that I've just spoken about, that is um, a South Asian thing about when we get married, we get kind of given, traditionally get given a case that you'd go off with, you know, go to your, your marital home with the case of saris that you'd put on. That no longer is the case exactly how it happens, but we get still get given a lot of the traditional stuff. As a, as a symbol in a way. Yeah, yeah. How, how it used to be. Exactly. And um, did you grew up in the UK, right? I was born in Canada, in the West Coast. That's right, that's yeah. right. You told me that before. And, um, but your, your mum emigrated from India to Canada. From Africa, right? from East Africa, from Kisumu Africa. in Kenya. Yeah, she was born in Africa. My dad was born in Mumbai. But she still had the Indian traditions of um, Indians living in that region. Yes, absolutely. Because her parents were both born in the north of India in Gujarat. Yeah. And when she got married, so they moved here in 1976. And when she got married, she literally, they went to India, the town in Gujarat. She got married and came back. Right. So because what I'm interested about in is the idea of this fabric moving, this fabric tradition moving through time. So if your mum was born, was Gujarati born in Africa, she maintained this tradition. And was it diluted in any way, the passage of this fabric? Were there any, did it, did it acquire any African influence? There was a lot of African influence in the clothing my mum had when they were younger. So they were more in the dresses and the sari blouses that you wear underneath. Yeah. Uh, my grandfather was a tailor, so he would make all of those pieces. So she had a lot of influence that way in sort of the dresses and the tops and things she'd wear. So not necessarily the saris, but the other clothes. And then in Canada, your grandparents joined you, is that right? So my dad's parents joined us over there. Yeah. And he was the tailor. Both, both sides, both my grandfather's were tailors. Both sides. So you've got a double, you've got a rollover. Yeah. Both sides. Was there a sense of inevitability about you becoming a maker? 
I think so. I think so. I always like my hands. You can't see them, everyone, but they're they're giant. Like I've got my grandfather's hands. Like they really are. Like if you looked at both of their hands, they're really tall guys with these long fingers, and it it, it seems genetic. When I talk about it, I'm like it's it's genetic because it was. It was like that when I first sat on the sewing machine, you know, you have like the first riding a bike and all the kids were kind of like, oh no, I feel really scary and stuff. And I was like, give me the machine. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> it was kind How of old were you? How old were you, Chilver? I was The first time I used the machine, I was like eight, eight years old. You put your pedal to the metal. I did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no That's doubt, fantastic. no doubt. Put down, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> That's such a lovely image. And um, when you were little, you were around garment making. So you saw it and, and absorbed it. And that was sort of your normal. Yeah, uh, the normal was like, so you have a washing machine, like dishwasher, maybe your sink, all your appliances and a sewing machine was part of the appliances of the home. That was one of one of the things that almost every household actually of our family members, we all had a machine in the house. So that was really a normal normal thing that you'd see and your grandparents what kind of garments were they making so they were making they did a lot of high tailoring so they did a lot of suits um lady suits so my mum's father when they moved over from africa to the uk he worked in bond street so just off of bond street in a dry cleaners that was actually doing a lot of the alterations and dry cleaning and things for royalty actually um i can't remember off the top of my head the name of that it, dry cleaners blossom and brown no um Do you know that one oh. blossom and brown the queen's dry cleaners they um they take if you send a dress to them or an item if it has any embellishment lace or um beading or anything they remove it all clean it and then reapply it all by hand wow yeah wow <laughs> Yeah, um, I can't remember the name, but it was it was this it was a very very high end dry cleaners there that he worked. So he was tailoring there. He did a lot of stuff there, and then also brought stuff home to do. And they had their machines at home. It's such an interesting part of London. I used to live there, and many of those businesses still exist, like tucked away. And um, yeah, walking past them, I put my nose in. I had a dog, and I used to walk the dog in the morning and seeing people. Are, coming and going it's such a contrast to nearby regent street with all the um fast fashion it's it's yeah it's sort of it's just so different it's like a yeah ghost of times past yeah you, you know the um the fabric they they inherited the the heirloom fabrics most of those would be that would be cotton um cotton and silks actually there's a lot of silks <sighs> a lot of silks because the fabrics they held on to were the silk saris usually the cottons were the day-to-day -day, the easy wearing ones yeah and then you have the wonderful brocades and the silks that were the you know the wedding saris are the ones going out going out ones the function saris what's lovely about it as well is those you describe receiving those gifts with those treasured memories but then thinking well actually in my in my modern life would i wear would I wear those things? Maybe, maybe not. You know, if, if people have moved into different places and aren't living in such a traditional way. And so you reimagine it into something which stands between 
their heritage and their modern life. Absolutely, exactly. This is this is this is a lot of the ethos that we bring is this sort of bringing your identity and heritage in these small accents and with with these touches that you can carry with you, but you you still are operating in a way of life where we were born here. Because of course, I wouldn't be wearing a sari every single day on any day here, you know. Um, so yeah. Just um, before I was thinking about you this morning and I was thinking about um, us doing this podcast and I was thinking it's it's interesting buckers to hear this, isn't it? Because not having that heritage, I was thinking like, what is my equivalent of things sort of, and I can't say with fabrics that, I mean, my dear Nana, who's no longer with us. Yeah, it wasn't rolls of beautiful sorry material. Yeah, that, um, she had in her wardrobe. <laughs> it was like she'd have. Oh, I don't know. But um, there's a few. Listen, there's. I've got a piece of fabric on my desk. Am I going to show you? Yes. <laughs> Look at this. I was thinking, what fabric from my family do I treasure? This. I'm holding up oh. a tiny oh. Terry toweling shoe bag, and it's almost rags now with my name on it. And this was made in 1978 when I started at school to put my shoes on to put on my peg. And it was made out of my dad's dressing gown that he'd worn for so long that it sort of dissolved. And mum took a piece of my dad's dressing gown and made it into my shoe bag for school. And, um, and well, that, that is it. Like, that, hope he didn't mind. <laughs> We'd have a big square so you could see his bum. On the bum. Yeah, and I just have had this in my possession. All the things in my life that I've lost and found and I've relocated and I've you know been up and down. And this little scrap of fabric has been with me. Look how wonky the name tape is. Look, it's so yeah. so darn wonky. That has um, stayed with me. And yeah, now my kid uses it. It's very satisfying. Mm. So I have a glimpse of how magical that must be for someone like me if I was your customer if I came to you if I didn't have anything if I didn't have a suitcase of treasure can we we can still approach garment making you can still create something special absolutely and this is where now our ready to wear pieces so we have ready to wear pieces on our website now where we're looking at kind of creating this for all customers really because exactly like you said um everyone comes from a different place and has a different story and we want everybody has a story though you know you've got a story there everyone has a story of yeah. something that they they love or treasure or also um cloth that they're drawn to so i'm drawn to a lot of chins and chins cloth actually originates that, in india which i never knew tell us what the proper meaning of that is because it's i think a floral um upholstery fabric am i in the right department yeah so so the chins is actually um derived from the word word jint and jint is a Indian word, a Hindu word, and um, it, it, the the meaning of it is a small pattern. Is a small pattern actually that that's the meaning of it. So that has of course evolved through time and when time of colonialism and the British Raj and stuff and that was of cloth that they fell in love with. I have a lot more research to do on it. So I'm not going to ramble off a lot of um, <laughs> dispersed pieces of things I've picked up, but that is something more to come. And we have a lot of 
um, not actual like chintz cloth, but chintz based patterns from like the seventies and stuff. And they would have been chintz inspired and rolls and rolls of these that were given to us from a granny's, um, from somebody's granny's sewing room, basically from the seventies. So we've got lots of upcycling to do. Um, of fabrics that we have in-house and stories to tell that people can have a part of. And so you start with the raw materials, the fabric, yeah. and then you you look at the weight of it, the, the pattern, the quality of it, and then think, what will we turn it into? Not, I'm going to make 10 jackets and now I need to source fabric. It's the other way around for you. 100%, 100%, because that's exactly it. It's kind of scavenging. I call it scavenging a lot of the time because I'm like looking through stuff and finding things in places where people have thrown it away. That's exactly where I look, where people are getting rid of stuff to save it and go like, wow, that's really beautiful. Why are you throwing that away? <laughs> one of the, um, one of the reasons why I really wanted you to join us on this podcast. And one of the things I admire about you is how present you are in your business and how much, um, joy you get from it yes it is a labor of absolute love it's le it's hard work isn't it making those garments it, that's a lot of work it's not a business where that you can suddenly you know rub yourself out of no it's hard no. work but you love it I love it. I sitting on the sewing machine like when I do have a garment that I'm sitting there sewing I absolutely love and am in flow when I'm creating that garment it is it is a form of sort of therapy. It's a form of kind of, you know, that sort of meditation in itself, like those stitches and that happening in that context is wonderful. And my team also love it in that way. And that's what I wish for people to understand that when clothing is created that way, there's energy in it and it feels different. It's worn differently. It is just magical. And that's when people feel that magic. A lot of my customers, they say to me, Shilpa, Oh, I had to email you straight away afterwards. I wore that outfit that you made and I, I didn't stop having compliments. Like people just didn't stop. They were, and on a day to day, people wouldn't ask them what they worn, but it was that they turned up in something that they were so involved with. And then we've put so much energy into that. And then they embody and show up in a different way. It happens every time, every time. And every time like the message comes, I just, I'm lit up because I'm like, this, this is real. This is real. I want everyone to know it. Like, you need, you need to be involved in the process. It's lovely to hear it. Buckers, do you know why I'm, why I'm smiling so much? Do you know, because can you feel where this conversation's going? We're going more towards the spiritual. I'm not sure. <laughs> so Shilpa, oh, yeah. the, reason this, the reason this is funny. Here comes Eckhart. <laughs> Here he comes. Yeah. <laughs> The reason this is funny is that over the last, well, year, but more intensively kind of over the last six months, I've been working with Seema and I've been doing lots of reading and I've been kind of doubling down on my spiritual practice, which was a bit, yeah, that had sort of gone off the boil over a, over a series of years. And um, I've been looking at um, traditional Indian yoga and reading about it and all this kind of stuff. And um, I'm extremely interested in this. Buckers, less so. <laughs> Buckers, not so much. <laughs> so every time I it's, hijack it's not the that I'm not interested in it. <laughs> She's banging on all the time. <laughs> the universe, this, Mother Nature, that. It's so funny. It's so funny. It's sort of like having a parent who is like, you know, joined some kind of thing and they're like trying to get their kid to do it. That's the kind of energy 
that we've got going on. And um, it's also fun for me because um, it's my podcast, so it's hard cheddar. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. um, But what you're describing is, to my understanding from my reading, from my spiritual reading, I meditated this morning, by the way, just to let you know. Okay, Bacchus. I did, outside, (laughs) under my fig tree. Um, I'm cutting that out. What you're just... It's lovely. (laughs) No fig trees in this podcast. (laughs) No fig trees. (laughs) No meditating um, under fig trees. (laughs) when When we do something with enthusiasm, you know, with joy and enthusiasm that that's something that comes from, you know, the energy of all life, God, whatever we, we choose to call it. And I really like that because I think that sometimes historically with women, enthusiasm has um, been disparaged in women sometimes as being, you know, as foolishness, you know, and a, a woman who's very excited and animated and interested and engaged in something. I certainly have experienced that. I'm an, I have an enthusiastic nature. And I've experienced like, um, you know, it being mistaken for sort of silliness or not being a serious person. And so to reconnect with that and saying like deep enthusiasm and devotion to the task at hand, to the matter of hand, whatever it is, whether it's creating a a complex garment with a team of people or whether it's um, putting peanut butter on a cracker for someone you care about, like whatever, the devotion and the enthusiasm that when we give ourselves wholeheartedly to what is in front of us, that um, it isn't silly, that it's godly. And that's, that's what you're demonstrating and, and the benefits of it for you, for your customers, for everyone around you. Yeah. And, and that there is no fathom of a doubt that that energy translates, that it does, does go through. So it's not only the benefit of me, it's my family, people around me. And then the person that wears that garment, it does that energy does transmute, it does carry on. There's, um, there's a phrase which um, you hear knocking about in the sort of business world, um, which is um, a legacy business. People say, mm. oh, a legacy business. And I feel like it's been slightly co-opted by the um, make more money people to sort of like say, what I'm trying to do is create enough money that future you know, future people are financially taken care of. But I feel like what you're describing is a much truer um, definition of what a legacy business can be. It's like being a good ancestor, isn't it? You know what? It's 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 quite magical that you've said that because I've um, I've had legacy at the foundation of what I want to do, what I am doing for a long, long time, and I've got really probably really bogged down by the fact that fact of like the money side of it like okay well legacy this can only be a legacy if oh well it survives my passing right yeah um but what i've also seen that immortalizing right things in writing like a book is also a legacy and so what i leave behind has not only got to be currency money it can be energy and the pieces that people are left with and as long as that so that comes to the circular design as well as long as our labels are in there telling people what to do with it and you know the the process stays alive and they have somewhere to go with that always i believe the legacy will still be there and folk 
equally focusing on the quality of that yeah as the metric rather than the um volume of output and the financial benefits as yeah. the metric yeah ensures that that is that that legacy is that energetic that that is you know that godly kind of feeling that you got from watching your grandparents garment making it's that yeah. feeling it's not yeah. because just if we look at those parallels again between um the garment repair places and the back streets um in mayfair and then regent street for fast fashion you know the metrics make mending treasuring things mending things yeah um, absolutely versus just pushing stuff out because you could you know when i look at your business you know as a listen i've worked for 15 years helping people to up all kinds of different measurements in their business and some of them have said you know i want to sell more i want to make a load of money and we could look at your business and say okay she'll provide if we do if we do four four do this in two colors two ways <laughs> two sizes uh, twice a year change the colors great and i'll do a calculation on the back of an envelope and i say right i can make you this much money it's nothing to do with that is it no no nothing and that that was actually a big struggle years before mm. this is that is that bumping up against that typical fashion industry sort yes. of you know seeing peers making and churning out say they'd have hundreds of something to go and sell or going to wholesale and saying that well i could give you 600 of this and when i was going with six i'm like oh, well i've only got six of these and finding where i would fit into that model was it was something very tricky but now i see it's something very beautiful and more meaningful and what we need with sustainability and and the clothing industry actually that coming back to this sort of way of personalizing things and the one you have is more important than the rest of the 10,000 that were made that then make you feel like you fit in because you're wearing the thing that everyone's wearing. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm happy to um, nod at you um, over the screen with a sort of benign or maybe slightly smug look because I have my clothes for years and years and I do repair them by hand. Yeah. Buckers. <laughs> Buckers, where are you on the, um, <laughs> where are you on treasuring a garment for life and repairing it scale? Um, somewhere, somewhere embarrassingly <laughs> low. <laughs> it's interesting. There's an age difference as well because Buckers is like a native born into um, the era of you know Topshop. That stuff didn't exist when I was a kid. So even though it arrived in the nineties, and I was sort of, well, no, not the nineties actually. When I was at university, we still got charity shop clothes and sort of patched them together. It wasn't. Yeah, so you were born within a culture of like buy lots of outfits, have change, change different, different things. So maybe your view on it's different. I was. That was your I normal. Was. However, if you asked me, yeah, but if you asked me, would I rather go into Topshop to look for a new dress or into a charity shop to look for a new dress? It would be charity shop every time. I love. It's like a ritual for me. I love taking a day to go through the charity shops. There's an amazing, in Oxford, we've got the Cowley Road and there's about 10 charity shops on that road. And one of my favourite things to do is to go in and out and I go through every single item in that shop looking for something that could be 10 or 15 years old. And that 
brings me so much more joy and getting it for six pounds and thinking I may be the 10th person to wear this so much more joy than just going and buying something off the rail in a in a high street shop. I misjudged you buckets well done that's lovely <laughs> Love it. Don't get me wrong, I do also like yeah. it. What's it? Boohoo. <laughs> I am not without sin. <laughs> I my boohoo days are long gone now, thankfully. Um but I did there there was a time in my life where Buckers loved a bit of boohoo, <laughs> but has has learned better ways. <laughs> yeah, it's not surprising though. It was, you know, it was quite intense for a while, that whole kind of thing. I do feel like, mm. you know, the world I love I love the sort of the sense of cycles with these things and I do really feel like that cycle is easing and that lockdown has really helped people to reconnect with mm. dressing in a way that is easier recycling things make making do swapping things it's become I, I think it's become more normal I mean it's yeah or maybe maybe I'm just super privileged and that's just in my bubble I don't know is it is that well, what... I, I think what you said about a cycle is, is true, and that's with fashion itself. We've gone through cycles, and and fashion has always taken a cue from what's happening in the world as well. You know, so if you look through time, there was different movement. There was there was like the boom of high street happened at. I have kind of placed it with the baby boomer generation. You know where let's blame that... them for everything. <laughs> They've got all the money. <laughs> well. Something I, I have just um, written about in one of the latest uh, blog posts that I've done is kind of in quite my little exploration into that and looking at perhaps the trauma that was passed on from the generation before them about not having enough and the scarcity through war and through having to really have the rations and things. And then when baby boomers come along, you know, it's, it's, it's that we can have lots, plenty, you know. Yeah. You know, and and we're moving now again into where, of course, we have climate change, we have all of these issues, but then we're going to, we have now Gen Z, right? And you're talking about Gen Z and how, you know, thrifting and going to a charity shop is something that is much, much uh, more fulfilling, you know? And again, you know, it's, it's going to move in cycles. I really... As well, when, as well, it used to be that, you know, we're talking about charity shops and that, you know, the clues in the name that... That's not, you know, that's not, that's as only a sustainable business model to keep charity shops open if the if the clothes are donated. But actually, consignment and vintage clothing being traded is a viable business model. I was just looking on your LinkedIn before we we talked today, and one of our mutual connections is Stephen Bethel, the founder of Beyond Retro, and that's mm. really really a big business. Do you know? That secondhand clothes shop in London, Buckets, oh my gosh, you'd love it. It's so well curated. It's yeah, really yeah. big. And there's there's quite a few branches. They tend to be in basements around Common yeah, Common. And they amazing. have things like, um, they'll have like um, biker jackets and they're just masses of them or um, yeah. lumberjack shirts, rails and rails and rails. So when you have a thing in your mind of like, you know, I want to make that type of look or I want some, yeah. you know, vintage jeans there's just absolutely rails or if you want a sort of rosemary's baby style dress with a high collar there's don't just like it's not all jumbled in it's very well curated and that does terrific business and it's is growing so it is a viable business model now so this is thanks to these gen z people turning the tide maybe yeah yeah absolutely and i i I think that's that's there's really something important and to say for that and I, I in no way just kind of 
you know, poo-poo the other, <laughs> going like, oh no, you know, everything has to be sustainable. I mean, I've been there. I went to uni and I know that I've shopped so much and there's shopping, things yeah. that I do I do not have any of that any of that stuff from that time I don't but I do have t-shirts from when I was eight years old still I've got a few know, treasures yeah I've got a few little things <laughs> a few sort of mm. 1970s and actually there's a few dresses of my mum's my mum was a very um was really stylish in the 70s and yeah talking about Rosemary's baby my my mum had a kind of, you know in the 70s would be like a high a lace sort of pie cross collar and then a floral dress with like a puff sleeve and then like Regency line to the floor. Yeah. That whole thing. Do you know, have you seen Rosemary's Baby Buckers? You might be a bit young. Do you know what that is? No, I don't know. What yeah, is Rosemary's Baby is like um, possibly the greatest horror film of all time from um, 1968. <laughs> it's um, with Mia Farrow. Do you know the actress Mia Farrow? She's um, got, yeah, she's very, very stylish. Um, yeah, she has Satan's baby. Yeah, <laughs> but the <laughs> and that's the dress that your mum your mum had a, a dress like no, Satan's the baby. mother of Satan's baby. That makes me. That does that make oh, me oh, Satan? Oh, okay. <laughs> the um, the reason is it's it's an iconic film. Like I'm not just, but it's not just. Yeah, it's an iconic film. Roman Polanski directed it, and it mm. it raises issues of. Um, um, coercive control, feminism, um, Christianity, um, um, ritualistic power, all this kind of stuff. And plus, when we talk about pattern, children's love for pattern, it's covered in pattern. It's kind of like just incredibly beautiful, vibrant film. I, I mean, I would say you should watch it as part of your education. My ongoing desire to educate Buckers in all things culture. <laughs> um, although the ending probably, yeah, would... Um, it traumatised you. <laughs> so take it. I was thinking of watching Bridesmaids tomorrow night, so yeah. maybe I'll switch from that. <laughs> Same sort of oh, I haven't just seen Bridesmaids. Have you seen Bridesmaids? <laughs> yeah. yeah, which do you recommend? <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, Fleur, I'll watch this if you watch Bridesmaids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Notes. Done. <laughs> Done. We'll swap. We'll do a cultural, a cultural exchange. <laughs> Swapping <laughs> cultural references. Yeah, so funny. We, uh, we haven't got too much time left, but this is a great segue, Buckers. Cultural exchange. Let's do a, um, a cultural um, swap shop. Who are your influences, Shilpa? Who, who do you pay attention to? Who do you follow? Who are you listening to? Who do you read? Can you give us a few for the um, reader Ooh, notes okay. so that we can yeah. get more inside your mind? Um, so I spoke about chintz cloth. Yeah. So one of the things now, my the newest book um, on my bookshelf is the chintz, chintz book from the chintz exhibition and the Fashion and Textiles Museum. So I've just got that. So that's my next read. Another one is Indigo by Catherine McKinley. And she's done the African Look book as well, which um, has a lot of pictures of our ancestors and looking at the way they dress and sewing machines and the whole like where cloth meets ancestry and legacy and that so that is on my bookshelf can you tell us what indigo is like the the dye why it's special indigo the um indigo is a natural is a natural dye and it is from a plant, uh, indigo plant. I don't. I'm not going to speak loads on that because I haven't finished reading the book yet, so I'm not going to go. But there's tradition of how it how it's used, how it goes into cloth, and how it behaves in different ways depending on what cloth and how you do it. And they have those big sort of outdoor 
um, pool things that they soak in, which are really sort of iconic. On I don't, I don't know much about it. It's interesting. Yeah. We have another real worker who's an indigo expert, Sophie. Yes. <laughs> um, lovely. So we're going to find yeah. out more about chintz and indigo. We're going to lead people out to find out about that. What, what else? What do you do for fun? Light what do I, do for, I, I, re, I read a lot and I love nature. Like I love going and walking in nature. I love, you know, going to find little nature trails and stuff like that. That is, that is really it. I've, I've got a little family. Um, so a lot of my free, then when you say like free time, what do I, no, I, I know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's no, <laughs> you know? there's no such thing so like that, but um, I think I am pretty immersed. Like I, I have to learn learn free time because I don't do free time very well because I always end up delving into some sort of a book that's got something to do with something I'm learning I, I just yeah and I'm really into learning about my astrology at the moment Hi. that is my next thing so yes um I'm delving into kind of learning about astrology my own astro astrological chart and what that means for my life and how I can work in flow with it rather than kind of going like, sorry, I was going to have everything. And like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, like on days like that can actually be because of my chart. <laughs> like, <laughs> Is it compatible with um, yo the yoga school? Like the yoga school of I, thought? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not, not sure. Not that it matters, so I, I but I wonder. comment on that. Which... But um, I have, have just had my first um, like official chart reading with a wonderful woman called Maya and um I can't wait to do more because I've just my head's nearly blown off with what amazing alignments there are and how my life has already gone I'm like that couldn't be made up because my life has already happened and now I'm reading it you know I had um my daughter's chart done and I'll just tell you uh -huh. one thing the first thing so this person didn't know anything about my child at all and said opened with you'll love the swackers she said um this is julie brown the uh, the astrologer who's part of real work she said um you do know that she's much more powerful than you <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh yeah that'll be why then that'll be that explains a lot <laughs> that explains a lot it's like okay okay so the idea was that i'm kind of the gate i'm, I'm the gatekeeper through which the energy has arrived on this planet. Mm. And that's my job. With them, with your kids, do they show interest in garment making? So um, my first daughter, she she followed me everywhere. So I was, um, I was divorced and a single mother for some time. So she was literally with me everywhere I went. So I was teaching sewing and things to some kids with a company called Little Hands Design and she did all the courses. So she did the courses from when she was three. So she can, she can sew, but it's really uh, a hobby for her. That's, that's a, an apprenticeship though. She's got the skills yeah. to pay the bills yeah. if necessary. And then my second, second one is, um, she hasn't shown any interest and she even says, mommy, can you help me choose my clothes? Because I always choose, um, you know, like she, she doesn't, ha she hasn't even got this thing where she, she wants to match things and put things together and stuff. She's just like, no, because I don't know how to do it. <laughs> put them together. And I'm like, yes, just go and put on, put on whatever. It's fine. You know? And she's, she's actually quite anxious to do that. And she goes to her elder sister to help her and things. So they're both really, really different, but um, I don't think either of them are kind of going in that direction, which is absolutely fine. I mean, time will tell the world keeps changing. Yeah.
Yeah. Shilpa, where can people find out more about the House of Billamoria? Uh, so the website is houseofbillamoria.com and uh, on Instagram, we're house underscore of underscore Billamoria. Thank you so much for being our guest, for being a very serene guest. Wouldn't you agree, Buckers? Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. That's it for today's episode of the Real Work Podcast. Thank you for being with us. This is the part where we remind you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And Buckers will probably tell me off if I don't ask you to please rate and review on Apple Podcasts because apparently when you do that, our content reaches more listeners. If you're curious about Real Work, the online membership Improving Women's Confidence Knowledge and Network, head to our website, doreal.work, and sign up for our super newsletter, The Real Worker. All the details that you need to connect with us in any way, you'll find in the show notes. Well, that was a super podcast. I'm, it's so nice to be back um, back in the studio recording again after a break and after a very special break because um, I am now an award-winning podcast, the International Women's Podcasting Awards for Entrepreneurial Inspiration. I'm glad it was that one that I won. No. I'm I'm an entrepreneurial inspirer. Do you think I should get a badge made up? Definitely, and a certificate and everything. I hope it's on your LinkedIn. Actually, I don't. I think I need to upload it to my you LinkedIn. You do, and also my profile on my, um, you know, my signature on my emails. Yeah, award-winning podcaster. So good. Congratulations. So much. Thank you. It's just a very, very exciting. It's a very exciting thing, and um, yeah, the event event looked amazing. Yeah, it was. Oh, do you know what, Flo? It was such a shame that you weren't able to come because it was probably one of the best awards dues I've ever been to. It was really? so good. Yeah, the just oh, the atmosphere, Fleur, was so, it was electric. It was just full of all of these amazing, inspiring female podcasters. It was just such was... a joy to be involved with. Did you meet new people and everything? Oh, it was, it was a networking central, but in like a really, not in like a, you know, annoying way. It was just, it all happened very organically. I met this really cool comedian. They had an amazing poet there. Oh, it was just, it was, it was great. And so much Prosecco. I wore like a really jazzy outfit. It was so much fun. It was such a shame that you couldn't be there. Yeah. um... Didn't you have, you had a hotel, you had a hotel booked as well, didn't you? Like a really snazzy one yeah i did i lost my money on the booking yeah oh, and my so kid was ill so that's what happens you know when your kid's ill you just have to you know be the better person and you and, booked um, your train ticket and everything as well yeah i lost the money on that as well you haven't you bought a special you bought a dress especially for the occasion didn't you listen i'm glad you felt great in your outfit and it was really nice of you to step in and you know go up and accept the award on my oh, behalf yeah. That was on my behalf. Thing. Totally wasn't expecting that. Yeah, that was amazing. Well, when they announced that you'd won, everyone was obviously really excited. And then they just pushed me onto the stage. And there I was just they pushed like, you. collecting they pushed an you award. Because yeah. I did make a video in advance. I did make an acceptance speech, which I pre-recorded. Yeah, for But some they didn't reason, play that. Yeah, the message, You got pushed onto the stage, did you? The message didn't get through that you weren't going to make it. So that's real. It's a real shame. But yeah, it's do you know what was really funny? It's almost like 
they sort of thought I was you when I was collecting it. I think they probably thought that I was actually you. It's so funny. Bizarre. That's... Mm. I'm glad you had a good time. We got a great goodie bag. I've got a candle for you. Candle? um, Yeah, candle and um, (sighs) some little vouchers for things and one a microphone um, and a the really nice trophy that I collected. I'll have to get that down to you at some point. I'm not quite sure when I'll be able to do that, but um, it's really lovely. Keep it. If you want to make a podcast that your audience will adore, where the thought of making it yourself terrifies you to the core, then you know who to call. Producer Buckers, she knows just what to do. Producer Buckers, to make your podcast dreams come true. She used to work in radio where she was poorly paleo, a dab hand at audio. Find Producer Buckers on Instagram at decibel underscore creative or click the link in the show notes. Come on, everyone. Producer Producer Buckers, if you want to hire the best, Producer Buckers, just put it to the test. Producer Buckers, just press record and she does the rest. Producer Buckers.